Let's jump into Galatians today. And I want to circle back on what I mentioned earlier about how so many of you have been sharing with me just the way that this, this book has been impacting you. And, and I want to share an email I received this past week um, with you, and, and actually then a poem someone wrote about Galatians as well. This is the email from last week. I have to let you know that today's message brought in so much clarity to me. I've been wrestling so much with believing if I am truly saved because of the emotions that I have in my heart. The way you explained how our flesh is in conflict with the spirit and the spirit in conflict with the flesh helped me know I do not need to question my salvation. If I am understanding correctly, here on earth we will always be in some kind of battle because of sin. For me to conquer my sin, I must be constantly seeking biblical wisdom and spending time with Jesus, and I'm still going to fall and fail at times, but that doesn't mean I lose my salvation, because I am saved because Jesus died for me, not because of anything I do or don't do. God will meet me where I am, and he will walk with me through my journey. I'm so grateful he is patient because I have so much to learn. Thank you for helping me better understand the book of Galatians. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, yeah. So uh, don't underestimate the power of God. It just, it just reiterates it to me again and again. And now I want to share this with you as well. Someone like actually like got moved to like pen the haiku here, you know? It, it's like full-on poetry based on Galatians, and, and it's entitled, Plus One. Those of you who have been with us on the journey, you might remember what plus one means in relation to this book. This is what it says. Just one more thing I must do to make all things right. I am befuddled and confused. My thinking has become a horrible blight. I know that just one more thing will transform me into a holy soul. Then, together the sum of them will allow me to reach my heavenly goal. Glory to God, he sees my goodness that allows me to be his child. I am living a life replete with actions that are honorable, worthy, and mild. See, my God, what I have been able to do for your glory in my life. I am befuddled and confused. My thinking ravages me like a double-edged knife. I am certain you desire these things through your grace given to me. And yet I am befuddled and confused because my heart remains blinded to thee. I continually search for one more thing that will make my creator pleased. Ever looking, ever seeking, with, with frustration that never will be eased. And a whisper of your word. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Nothing more, nothing less than what you accomplished and on that despised tree. No longer am I befuddled and confused. My plus one is now a majestic three. 
All glory, honor, and praise to the risen Lord, Father, and Holy Spirit. Now your word is deeply treasured as I hear it, because now I realize that everyone baptized in your name receives living water. We can claim you as Abba, whether as a son or as a daughter. And a whisper of your word. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but God's child. Since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. No more plus ones, gracious Lord and Savior, living in peace, joy, compassion, and love. The Holy Spirit will not let me waver. Kind of cool. So if you're moved to write poems, I mean, hey, send them our way, and you, and you get the poetry reading right here. More importantly, if you're moved to write songs, give them to Steve, because I'd like to see that played out here on a Sunday morning, all right? And, and, and what you come up with that, the weirder the song or the better, by the way. Steve likes that. And, um, you know, the more, the more varied and more eccentric the instrument, just know that that's what he wants. So, so go for that and uh, see what you can put together with, like, that, like, that, that, like, Tibetan throat singing, maybe with, like, like sitar and, and bongo. That, that would be on, right there. Galatians is this letter that's, it's profound. It's like 200, it's like 2,000 words. I mean, it's shorter than a lot of high school essays. And yet in these 2,000 words, God is saying something so profound, something so counterintuitive and countercultural. God is saying something so amazing and his spirit seems to work through it. The, the gist of Galatians is basically this, that a relationship with God, that being a part of God's people and getting right with God is not about what you do. It's about what God has done for you. And that concept is encapsulated in a word called the gospel. And the gospel is about what God saves us from, but it's also about what God saves us for, that God has saved us from a life of fear and anxiety, of trying to please him and worrying if we're good enough, that God has saved us from the sins and the guilt and the shame that rightfully, and we know it, rightfully condemn us before him, that God has saved us from the penalty of sin, which is death and all punishment that should come in its wake, that God has saved us from the powers of this world, the evil of this world, the evil powers of this world, no longer in bondage or slavery to them, he saved us from them, and he saved us for something more, for a life immersed in his spirit, for a new way of thinking, feeling, living, for a new kind of relationship with God, for a purpose and a destiny. God is saving us from things. God is saving us for Things for a life immersed in his spirit. And from this point, Paul takes us into the next section of Galatians, where he is going to give us some amazing practical insights and in what it looks to live this life of the spirit in him. We pick up right at the end of Galatians chapter 5 and the first several verses of chapter 6. Here's what he says. 
since we live by the Spirit, because of what Christ has done for us, since we live by the Spirit, he says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And from here, he goes more into how this will impact our relationships. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with their instructor. There's two things I want to share out of here, two things I want to extract, two things that I think Paul is wanting us to hone in on. And the first is this. Let us not become conceited. After telling us not, or rather, to live out this new life in the Spirit, to keep in step, to keep in pace, if you will, he says, let us not become conceited. Don't become conceited. Don't think more highly of yourself than you should. Because if anything has come across in Galatians, it is this. We are all sinners saved by grace. That none of us stands in a position where we can rightfully compare ourselves to each other. Because at the end of the day, we all stand as sinners who have fallen so far short of what God commands. And our standing with God is not because of what we do. It's not because of the intrinsic nature of who we are. It is not because of a status that we hold. Don't become conceited. Don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought. Because fundamentally, at the end of the day, what marks all of our identities, the common denominator that we share is that we are all sinners whom God loves and saves through the work of Christ because of his grace. Conceit, I think, is really nothing more than insecurity. It's a life that's lived by comparison to other people. And this conceit, I find, will often take two forms. It'll occupy two spaces. Those who think that they are superior to other people and those who feel inferior to other people. But both share the same common denominator. Viewing the identity that I have in my life in relation to someone else. The superior person views other people and thinks they're better than them. Maybe they're more successful. Maybe they're better looking. Maybe they're more intelligent. Maybe they're more talented. Maybe they just see themselves as holier sort of people. All of it is conceit. All of it is viewing myself on a relative standard compared to other people. And if I see myself as being better than other people, well, it's a form of superiority 
and conceit. But inferiority, mind you, is conceit as well because it's involved in the same comparison game. Looking at other people, envying them, wishing I could be like them. Driven, therefore, to either strive to gain their approval or achieve their standard or living in some kind of shattered self-esteem. Knowing that I'm never good enough but constantly engaged in the comparison game for my understanding of me. Both are competitive. Both are pursuing an identity based on how I perceive other people around me and chasing after that. And Paul says, the life in the spirit doesn't look like that. Don't be that way. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Let us not become conceited, comparing ourselves against each other. Let us not become conceited, making that the metric for coming to the identity of who I am. It's easy to spot, isn't it, with with those kinds of people who are arrogant, those kinds of people who kind of live it over others. But one of the ways that I see it so often, particularly in the church, is mask under what they think is the virtue of humility. But often what it appears to be is a counterfeit virtue where people think that they have to debase themselves and lie about themselves in order to achieve a different state. I want to share a line with you from C.S. Lewis who writes about this. Little quote that I absolutely love. Look at what he says. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Isn't that great? Humility does not mean denying who God made you to be, the talents, the abilities, the goodness that he is doing through you to deny those things, to deny the very God who gave them to you. But to fixate on those things? Oh, quite another matter. Because see, one of the things God saves you for, one of the things God does in you through his gospel is he saves you from a life of comparison. And he saves you into a new image and new self-identity. As someone who was born again, born into the spirit and by the spirit of God. A life that is judged by what God thinks of me and how I think of myself in relation to him, not everyone around me. This is why he says, if you're deep into the second paragraph, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Test your own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to anyone else. Because guys, I got to tell you this. It doesn't matter what other people think. At the end of the day, it does not matter in comparison to what God thinks. 
And the life of the Spirit is marked by a renewing of a self-identity measured by what God thinks, not the standard of everyone around. Which means when we find ourselves torn and pulled in the midst of these kinds of things, we almost have to preach this message to ourselves. This new self-identity we have in Christ, when we start feeling superior to those around us, telling ourselves, wait a minute, the only reason I have anything and am anything is because of what God has given me. Wait a minute, that person is a sinner just like me. God loves that person the same as he loves me. No, 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 no. I'm not better than he is. We are sinners together, saved by grace. And it's a message to give to yourself when you find yourself in inferiority as well. To be able to step back and go, wait a minute. What do I care what they think about me? God calls me his child, a son an heir, a seed of the promise of Abraham. God calls me one of his own royalty, baby. Look around you right now. No, I do it. (laughs) Do you not realize that you are sitting in the company of kings and queens? Royalty. Heir to the promise, heir to the kingdom. That's what God thinks of me. And that new identity changes everything. And it's only once we've stepped into that new identity and the spirit that the rest of this has any chance of working. Because what Paul says next Well, straight up, I think it's kind of disturbing. He says this. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. Now, I don't think we have any problem here this morning talking about not being conceited. Like, amen, brother, right? Preach it. But you come to this line... Cut it out. Why can't it go from 5 verse 25 or 26, whatever it is, straight into 6 verse 2? But that's what it says, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual are to restore him gently. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, ignore it. Notice what it doesn't say. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, shove it under the table. Notice what it doesn't say. Brothers, if if someone is caught in a sin, tell yourself, well, I'm not really any better than they are, so I can't really do anything about it. No. It calls us to do something that very few of us want to. There's a few of you who pride yourself on this. I got words for you later. (laughs) But to the rest of us, who have learned what it means to not be full of conceit. If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore 
him gently. It only works if we're not caught and conceit. And believe it or not, this piggybacks off what Jesus said. There's sometimes people who like to pit Paul against Jesus, but Paul knew Jesus better than virtually anyone. And the more you study Paul's writings, the more you realize that they're inspired directly by the teachings of Jesus. And some people like to quote this, judge not lest ye be judged, and stop it right there. But Jesus goes on to say, you hypocrite, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye when you got a log sticking out of your own? And we like to stop it right there. But he goes on to say, first remove the log from your own eye to what end? So that you can then see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Or maybe as Paul puts it, if you find them caught in sin, to remove yourself from conceit and to restore them gently. To restore them gently. Because to live contrary to the spirit has consequence. To restore them gently. Because sin does damage. To restore them gently because it actually matters. And it leads to a life of pain and destruction. To restore them gently. The Greek word that stands behind this little phrase is katartizo. Can you say that, katartizo? Kind of fun, huh? Katartizo. It's the same word for setting a broken or dislocated bone. Have you ever broken a bone? Or dislocated a thumb or a finger or a shoulder or your head? (laughs) It hurts. Doesn't it? It hurts. And in the pain, you don't want anyone to touch it. Just leave it alone. Just leave it alone because it hurts. But the loving thing to do, the healthy thing to do, the good thing to do is to restore it so that health and healing can be a part of the way again. One of the most loving things that you can ever do for another Christian is to restore them gently when they're in a life of sin. It's what God calls us to do. It's what God calls the church to be. So often we fall into a trap, don't we? Of thinking of church as this experience that we share on Sunday. But then as we think about this experience that we share on Sunday... Thinking about it as coming as an individual to consume a certain menu of spiritual goods and services. What is it going to say to me? What is it going to do for me? How is it going to inspire me? How is it going to help me? All good things. But we turn church into a restaurant. A bunch of individuals who don't really know each other gathering in the same place for the same food. But God has called the church to be something very different. He's called it to be a gathering, doing life together. By the way, as an aside, it's one of the reasons why we did Church in the Round. Because isn't it easy to make it a spectator sport when I'm up here and you're in concert seating facing this way? That we're called to life together. Doing life together, which means acknowledging one another. 
looking into each other's eyes and walking along people when their eyes are filled with tears and celebrating with people when their hands are raised in joy and moving beyond the awkwardness that we have in human relationships to something deeper and more free of conceit and building into one another to help each other on this journey of life in the spirit. And Paul now moves into doing it in such a way where we restore each other in the process. It's why in this faith check process that we have going on right now and in our member covenant and things like that, we have little lines like this that we recommit to starting our lives every day, which means repenting of our sins, acknowledging the conceit within us and taking the logs out of our eyes and recommitting to live as God wants, which means doing life together, at least in part, and making myself accountable to the body as long, to the body of believers at FOF as long as I am here. It's committing to what Paul is saying in these words. If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Two illustrations I want to give for you on this that kind of help. Remember when my son was about seven, eight, maybe nine years old? You know, it's that, 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 that the, like teething stage, part two. They're not coming in for the first time, but they're coming in for the second time, you know, and they're walking around all gap tooth and stuff like that, you know, first grade, second grade, you know, we all know when this kind of hits. And he had this tooth that was hanging in the front. It was one of these front kind of teeth. Have you ever seen this or have you ever had this? Of course you have. You're over the age of 12. So where it's getting loose and as it gets loose, it starts to ache, right? And it comes to that point where it starts to hang sort of by a thread, you know what I mean? And it's not so loose yet. We got someone already covering their ears. This is fantastic. It's not so loose yet that you can do anything about it, but you can't eat. You can't speak and your mouth just aches and you find yourself in the quandary just going, I just wish that it was out. But the pain involved with taking it out is just too much to take. Well, my son Ben was here at church that day, and we go to a, a longtime attender of this church. Uh, a lot of you know him, JD. He's a dentist. And Ben comes up to me, and he's showing it to me. I'm like, hey, go show it to Dr. Dan, or go show it to JD. And he goes, oh, okay, Ben, let me take a look at this. And all these kids from the rock came circling around. <laughs> Just raise your gum up, raise your lip up for me a little bit. And without warning, this is what he does. <laughs> it happened so quick Ben didn't even know it hit him and what I love more is all these rock kids around him go oh <laughs> because it hurts to address the sin doesn't it but it needs to be done because it's done for our spiritual Betterment. Second illustration. Who's ever seen an arrow wound get cauterized? No? None of you? Well, good news. I've got a video clip that I want to show you today where we're going to see just that. Take a look.
What you waiting for, boy? <laughs> Here, you can do it. I'll hold him down. Here, you can do it. I'll hold him down. Let's right stay in the wind, boy. I know it seems like a waste of good whiskey. You indulge me. Hold him! Hold him! Hold him! Now, let him go. Sorry, I'm, I'm so. Oh. All right. That'll wake you up in the morning, boy. It is the perfect living illustration to me of what it is like to restore someone in their sin. You don't want to do it. Here, you do it. I'll hold him down. Here, you do it. I'll hold him down. Because you know that if you do it, you are going to get hit. Because sin is a wound, and it's deep within, and it hurts, and you don't want anyone touching it. But do you know what would have happened to that man if they didn't address the wound, if they didn't address the sin? It would have gotten infected. It would have festered. He would have gotten horribly sick to the point that his life may have been inalterably changed for the worse. Or it would get infected and it would fester and he would die. Not treating the wound would have been the most unloving thing that they could have done even though he, it brought them extreme pain in the minute. Make no mistake, it is not easy to address sin. Give me the passage again. Put it on the screen. It's why Paul says this. Gently. Gently. Restore the person gently, not from a place of conceit or arrogance, no. From a place of love and compassion. Gently. Because I promise you this, the person is gonna come out swinging. We don't like it when people push their fingers into our sin. They are going to take a shot at you, which is why in the church we have to learn above all people what it means to follow the teachings of Jesus and turn the other cheek. Because when we are in pain, we take swings. But the fear of taking a hit should not lead us to defy what God is calling us to do in helping other people with their sin. It's where Paul leads us. And it strikes me how much it, f it, it follows within the spirit of what he's been saying. Both inferiority and superiority in a life of conceit are both a works righteous kind of way of living trying to get a status with other people, trying to find community with other people, and trying to get into relationship with God by the basis of what 
we do, not what he has done. And what Paul is asking us to do here isn't anything that he hasn't done. The whole basis of this letter is based on Paul people calling people out in their sin. False teachers coming from Jerusalem telling these believers that Jesus is a good enough way to get started, but now you've got to add your obedience to plug on that plus one of the Mosaic law because it's about what Jesus did and also what you do. What would have happened if Paul didn't address it? What would have happened to those people's lives, to their souls, to their relationship with God if they lived into that lie? So what does Paul do? He addresses it. How does he do it? He calls Peter to his face. This is Peter for crying out loud. I mean, this is the man. This is the king of the apostles. And he calls him out to his face because he knows that to leave the sin unaddressed has fatal consequences. And he calls us to do the same. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And I won't screen through. Give me the last slide now. And to close this off, it is why it is so vital that we do this. Test our own actions. Because in the process, it can be so easy to confront sin in someone else's lives for our own sense of superiority. It can be so easy to confront sin in someone else's lives for all the wrong reasons. No, Paul says, test your actions. If you think you're something when you're nothing, you're deceiving yourself, test your own actions in this. Do it for the right reason. Then you can take pride with yourself without comparing yourself to somebody else. And paradoxically says we should carry our own load. Carry each other's burdens, but carry your own load. Address the sin in their life and set it gently, but not with any sense of superiority or arrogance or busybodiness within it. From a spirit of love, of life together. It's what life in the spirit looks like. And just another aspect of what God is inviting us to and what he saves us for. Putting it into practice is going to be the hard part. But fearing it and avoiding it because it's hard shouldn't lead us to walk away from it. What would it look like for a body of believers to actually live this way? To put it into practice the right way, not in the world's way, but a different way by the Spirit. Man, salt and light in that right there. I encourage you begin turn the other cheek when you get hit do it out of love and compassion for the person who's wounded because the Christian life is messy it's hard and it can be confusing which is why God has called us together in the midst of it 
More on Galatians next Sunday.